Welcome to Functional Futures, a podcast where developers, compile creators, and PLT specialists talk about the future of functional programming. Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um, we are starting our uh, fifth episode of um, our uh, interview series in uh, with Sirocco, and uh, this is actually our first uh, official uh, podcast uh, episode. So we, we will have also a uh, an audio-only version for this interview. Today I'm joined with, by uh, Brooklyn Zelenka, who is uh, famous in certain uh, communities, among other uh, achievements, for um, writing uh, some really cool uh, Haskell fan fiction. And um, um, uh, as far as I understand, she describes herself as a PLT enthusiast. And uh, uh, yeah, this is... Uh, and also... Uh, Brooklyn is known to be um, working always on the um, kind of edge between uh, different disciplines. So uh, we're, we're kind of trying to be on brand and inviting uh, multidisciplinary uh, people to our podcast. So um, yeah, I, I hope that I didn't uh, mess up the introduction, Brooklyn. And um, I, I would actually just really start with, with asking you about uh, how did you end up uh, pushing buttons to make computers do stuff? As far as I understand, you started your career not as a coder necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, first off, thank you so much for, for having me here um, and uh, for the nice introduction. Um, and yeah, you're right. I, I didn't start off as a, as a coder. I initially was studying um, music theory and composition um, and did, did a little bit of that, did some, uh, film scoring, things like that, uh, for very small, you know, independent things. Um, but you know, hard, hard way to make a living. Um, and, uh, because I was in music, I was also doing a lot of the concert posters for my, um, you know, uh, the other students in, uh, in school. So I ended up with some, uh, Photoshop illustrator skills, worked as a graphic designer for a little bit, which, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot more demand for it than, uh, than a classical composer. Um, and, uh, worked a bunch of, uh, random odd jobs, ended up in a, um, uh, a startup, uh, and they said, Hey, you know, do you think you could, um, uh, learn a bit of front end, uh, development because, you know, we wear a lot of hats, you know, uh, you're a designer, you could maybe, maybe do some of that stuff. And they sent me, you know, over the weekend with a couple of books and I came back on Monday and they're like, you seem better at this than you are at the graphic design. Like, could you just like keep programming? Uh, so I did that at the time we were using a, um, this is like before, you know, node was really, you know, the, the clear winner as we're using a JVM based, um, uh, backend that would let you mix and match all the different JVM languages. And this company definitely was mixing all of them. So I had to pick up a bunch of languages really, really quickly um, if I wanted to interact with the backend. So, you know, Groovy, JRuby, Clojure, a, a whole bunch. Um, and found that I really liked it. Um, and so got uh, really into, uh, as I like to say, uh, collecting programming languages, um, getting really into PLT and uh, sort of the rest is history, I guess. Before we start talking about like PLT at large and maybe in some particular details about stuff, um, I would also I would also like to ask you about the following. Well, right now you you are a CTO, right? So which is a, mm-hmm. a which is a, a leadership position essentially. So, uh, mm-hmm. so um, I think that it will be very interesting for our uh, viewers about uh, your path to like uh, technical leadership and. Um, 
given that, as far as I know, you managed to to get into technical leadership reasonably quickly, perhaps what are the parts of your background prior to that uh, contributed to this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's uh, two two parts to it, I guess, really. Uh, one is I ended up doing a lot of uh, management in places that are just not related to tech at, at all. Um, so, uh, you know, my first job, uh, you know, through, through high school and university was, um, uh, at a restaurant, right in the um, in the kitchen, and so learning to you know as you work up through the ranks, learning to manage uh, there, which is a very you know I, I wouldn't recommend uh, you know restaurant internal um, uh, management practices. It's mostly screaming, but uh, you know learning from those things of what not to do really. Um, you know, working odd jobs in say retail and ending up really quickly in management there as well. Um, my co-founder, Boris, uh, often talks about people who have the common sense gene turned on. Uh, and so I think mostly it was, I had some degree of common sense, um, would look at something and go, hmm, that doesn't seem right. Let's fix it. Let's um, get everybody aligned. Let's um, uh, make sure everybody's unblocked, right? And not just have the thing be broken forever. Um, and so you end up just, yeah, over the years developing some experience with that. And I think that then carries over into other, um, uh, other fields, right? Cause it's a, a interpersonal skills, um, portion. Uh, the other part from the purely technical leadership side is, um, so I'd worked at this small startup. I had done some, uh, consulting on my own and built up, um, you know, a, a skill set um, and a bunch of languages, which, uh, unintentionally, I think, had some like proof by intimidation of I would talk to somebody and be like, oh, it's like in whatever. It's like in Clojure. It's like in Haskell. You kind of do it like this. People went, oh, she must really know what she's talking about. But at the time, I have like, you know, two years of experience. Um, so you end up getting, you know, thrown into um, uh, uh, leadership positions or, or running teams, um, you know, more quickly from the purely technical angle as well. Yeah, this is kind of already a little bit answers uh, the the question that I have as a follow up, which is um, like um, you know not like normal path of uh, getting there is uh, to go to a university, right? To to study mm -hmm. computer science for a while, and then like around third year or something to figure out which branch interests you the most, and then basically kind of. Um, Special, well, become a specialist, right? Like, uh, cla like classically trained uh, specialist, mm -hmm. and then, uh, and then, kind of work like human skills, uh, uh, so social skills afterwards. Um, um, but of course, there are like uh, big advantages of the of the classical approach as well, because this way, uh, uh, people kind of have people like allocate a time where they more or less are dedicated to studying uh, computer science related subjects. So, um, uh, so what, maybe you can share some, I don't know, organizational tips and tricks. How, how did you manage to like, to, to persevere, you know, in the world full of distractions and uh, keep learning and, and, and yeah. So that's the question. Yeah. Um... So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's true. My, uh, my background is maybe to say messy at best. Um, what I've noticed from people who went the uh, classical route um, is they've been exposed to things that they may not um, have had interest in at the time, right? So 
they're forced to take a compiler's class, let's say, right? Um, people that are self-taught can kind of wander around and explore the things that are interesting to them. Um, I have the um, both advantage and disadvantage of everything's interesting to me. So uh, I, you know, I was doing this in my, I guess, what, early to mid twenties uh, and was literally just working 17 hours a day, seven days a week, right? And just reading books, writing code, um, uh, looking at other people's code, getting into older books, right? And and all of this stuff. And that's really been consistent throughout my career is just reading, learning, talking to people, um, going to conferences, picking people's brains, um, and feeling like every time I feel like I've hit a plateau, um, trying to find some other new area that might be uh, of interest in which to grow. And that often takes me into these, you know, as you mentioned before, um, sort of the, the boundaries between different um, uh, areas, because I'll be reading a book on, you know, whatever compiler design and distributed systems and going, well, could I apply compiler optimization to distributed computation? The answer is, you know, yes, right? And oftentimes other people have already done that and I'm reinventing the wheel, which in a university setting, your professor would say, you're reinventing the wheel, go look at this paper, right? Um, whereas for me, it's, or other self-taught people, it's uh, more of a random walk. But uh, you can end up in a place where you, if you're passionate about it, right? If you, a, it feels easy because it's, it's also a hobby, right? Um, but uh, where you've gone really deep into some areas that other people may not have because it's not this received curriculum, right? So it has advantages and disadvantages. Um, I also saw this in, um, uh, you know, back in music school because I was primarily self-taught prior to going to university. Um, and then I was getting a rigorous classical training. Uh, and it was the same sort of thing of when I was self-taught, I didn't know that this was supposed to be a very difficult piece to learn, let's say. And then I go to, you know, uh, audition and they say, wow, you're playing Prokofiev, or, you know, whatever, right? Um, and then getting the really rigorous, like, no, these are the exercises you need to do, do them in this order, right? Listen to these records and so on was also helpful. So I think that they're just uh, uh, different, but you have to have a lot of self-discipline to do the self-teaching route. Yeah, yeah and, and for sure, exercises are very important either way. Uh, I, I think you will agree with me. And um, uh, yeah, I wanted to say, uh, to, to, to kind of add to, to your point about uh, how students are normally very fascinated about uh, the curriculum. Uh, I think that one of the most important things they teach in in, uh, in computer science uh, uh, universities is actually uh, stuff related to uh, technical writing and uh, code styling, etc. And um, the whole notion of you know you write the code once and then it's read like thousands, if you're lucky. Uh, hundreds of thousands of times, yeah. So you have to re write it for the reader, not for yourself or for for the machine. And I, me included, I lasted in the university long enough to 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 uh, to have this class. And I know no one who is like excited about this stuff in in the uni, which 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 kind of creates like this backlash effect, right? Because like then when these people graduate and they start writing code and they kind of have this repulsion towards thinking about technical writing and whatnot, we, we, we have mm -hmm. some, some problems from that. Um, well, um, all right. So you, you, actually you mentioned this one very interesting thing, interesting thing when you said that uh, you were reading old books uh, and old literature mm -hmm. about computer science, which perhaps um, 
again, already is a start of, uh, of my other follow-up question, which is normally when, when I personally observe people who, who are, let's say, non-coders or, or like non-primarily coders tr transitioning into being like complete, like mostly or full-time uh, computer programmers, uh, their first, their initial exposure to programming is in um, some sort of maybe scientific language or maybe some sort of like C-like language or a scripting language like PHP or Lua or something like that. I don't, I don't know if, if Lua is a thing uh, anymore, but you know what I mean. And um, what I find uh, very as a, as a very frequent pattern is that uh, people people who have this career path kind of tend to 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 stay within this kind of boundaries. Maybe they will learn like C-like language and a Python, or they will uh, learn like Java and Kotlin. You know, but uh, it's it tends to be very uh, well justifiably limited their their scope. And you be I think you are well well for sure one of the most polyglot developers that that uh, I'm aware of or that I know. Uh, so um, yeah, aside I guess aside from the fact that the JVM had the many uh, front ends, uh, what was uh, uh, what's what's the what's your secret to to never stopping. Yeah, uh, so I think a big part of it early on was um, imposter syndrome and just saying, you know, well, you know, uh, everybody else obviously knows how to write Ruby. I need to learn how to write Ruby. And then, oh, there's this Python thing. Oh, they actually look kind of similar. Oh, what, what are the differences, right? And kind of finding that I, I liked learning about those things. Uh, starting from just, you know, the absolute surface and then, you know, discovering, oh, okay, there's, you know, these families of languages and how are they different? Can I, um, uh, both to deepen my understanding on things, but also just, you know, for, for pure interest, is it possible to express object-oriented um, style in standard ML, right? Or, or whatever, right? Um, which has ended up being a bit of a theme, I think, in my, in my career is this uh, uh, remixing uh, of ideas. Um, uh, so yeah, on, on the polyglot side, I mean, early on, I was writing mostly uh, JS on the front end, um, uh, PHP, and then JVM languages. Um, did a, a whole bunch of PHP uh, as consulting, worked as a Rubyist for a few years. Um, I was also running the, because I found uh, myself drawn to FP just very quickly uh, as something that seems to make sense, that felt rigorous, that that I enjoyed the aesthetics of, right? Um, and Clojure being one of my first languages, I think really, you know, I fell in love with with Lisps um, and uh, that then, you know, they would mention, you know, ML. And so I, I went and look, would look at, you know, standard ML or Haskell or, you know, OCaml, right? Um, I ended up running the uh, like the the overarching unified uh, functional programming meetup here in Vancouver, um, and a lot of people were coming in uh, who wanted to learn about um, that had no exposure. They were just told functional programming is interesting, right? And so I would have to meet them where they were at. It's like, okay, great, you're writing Python all day, and you want to learn what a monad is. Let's write a monad in Python and just see see what that looks like, right? Um, and so part of it is this learning by teaching um, uh, approach and having to uh, uh, 
be able to express to people that, you know, I was really the advocate for FP and I was trying to, to get other people into it. Uh, and that meant that I put more of a, a burden on the teaching side of, okay, well, let's meet you where, where you're at. I'm going to go and learn a little bit of whatever the language is and try to get something closer to where they're, they're coming from. Yeah, that's that's really cool. And uh, yeah, well, this is one of my favorite quotes that uh, in order to really learn something, you have to first teach it. So that's uh, also very, very relatable. Uh, but, uh, well, it's it's kind of true, right? But also at the same time, you know, to teach someone how to write a monad in Python, you kind of have to understand uh, enough about monads. And um, yeah. I, I really, I genuinely, um, it's hard for us, I guess, to look back uh, Mm-hmm. to uh, us being confused about this concept and kind of mm-hmm. pinpoint exactly what was the issue there, uh, mm-hmm. which is which is something um, I'm trying my best myself to keep the, the beginner's mind attitude. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, but I know for sure that for me, like this concept, I guess that go hand in hand with like stuff like parametric poly- polymorphism and, uh, you know, Okay, type variables maybe it's kind of understandable, but like the underlying uh, manifold of, of concepts, perhaps uh, wasn't uh, too understandable for me. And um, yeah, I know for sure that for me it was like a huge gap to 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 get into this parts of of like of ML like languages. So uh, I don't know if you have the same experience. What were your like road big roadblocks uh, in in understanding FP concepts and advanced FP concepts as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I found um, standard ML very natural. Uh, I had picked up, I can't even remember, this was so long ago, um, but I, I uh, picked up a couple like classic FP books from the 80s, I think, um, that were written in, in SML um, and really enjoyed it, but it, it's not doing, uh, you know, a lot of the like, a lot of the techniques that people get hung up on today didn't even exist, right? Um, so uh, when I moved into trying to write actual code in, say, Haskell, right? Um, uh, I remember bouncing off of, uh, you know, applicatives and monads in particular, or, you know, even, say, traversable, th- things like this, uh, a few times, and being able to uh, remember perfectly well um, how to use it, right? So I'm going to do notation and, you know, here's my, the DSL that I'm using and that's great. And then looking at the theory and be like, okay, the theory makes sense and not being able to reconcile the two, like they didn't seem to match each other. Um, And you're right that once we've gotten over that, that hump, right? um, It's immediately, everything makes sense and uh, it seems obvious. And so it suddenly is hard to teach, right? Uh, other than having empathy for the person who's um, who, who's experiencing experiencing this, right? Um, and I've seen this a few times now, where so you know we have a, a Haskell backend at uh, my company Fission, and we'll bring somebody in who's never seen Haskell before, and we'll try to teach them what whatever the the concept is. Um, and it's hard, it's hard, it's hard, and then they get it, and then it's like, well, why was this ever confusing in the first place? And they are in the same spot of it's hard to teach it again because now they have this framework that works in their brain, right? Um, the one that really did, um, that helped for me on this was, um, I can't remember his name, but there was a, um, one of the main people behind Link, 
uh, LINQ, the um, the database language, did a video explaining oh, monads, yeah. right? And uh, just walked it through really simply. And it's like, it's nothing other than this, right? There's no other magic happening. And for me, that was like the click of right the theory portion and the practice portion are actually it's the same thing and i need to stop looking for there's some extra magic because i'm so used to there being extra magic in languages to support these features right yeah yeah for sure and the video is we will put it in the description and, and uh, uh notes uh yeah, it is it was very important for me as well um i still remember the first time i, I i've seen it it was uh, at work i was doing some banking in c sharp and we were using link gladly it was pretty cool mm. And I mean, it is a cool technology. And um, I was just searching for some materials about Link. And I was already like kind of putting, uh, like Haskell was th basically with me throughout my career in some capacity. So I was, I kind of had like Haskell learning on the back burner back then. And uh, then I've seen this video and I was like, oh, I should I should get back to, to that Haskell thing. It's it's really, really cool. Um, yeah, in general, it, 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 it it also obviously translates to F sharp to, to a reasonable degree. Um, I'm mm -hmm. pretty sure that these days uh, the whole .NET infrastructure is even better than what 10 years ago. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that uh, this is also kind of a nice suggestion for people. Like if you have, for example, just like you had right JV JVM code base with a lot of imperative code, but you also had some Lisp, right? So like uh, mm -hmm. same same way, if you have .NET code like out of work hours, you can also experiment a little bit with F sharp, and maybe uh, something will click, and uh, you'll also then uh, become a polyglot uh, developer. Um, um, so uh, I wonder. You mentioned Fusion, and you mentioned onboarding into Haskell code bases. So does uh, does it actually help to 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 have authored uh, like Witchcraft, for example, and and like monads in Python, etc. To, you know, to like, somehow um, allow people to to conceptualize some stuff uh, easier. And yeah, for, yes. for sorry for for those viewers who are not or listeners who are not familiar with what Witchcraft is, maybe it's time to introduce it briefly. Sure, absolutely. Uh, so maybe the best way is to describe how Witchcraft came to be, because that probably gives a lot of the. Um, the, con the context of, of even what, what it is, right? So uh, I was at um, the Vancouver Functional Programming Meetup and had uh, Vancouver, at the time, I think probably still, had a lot of Rubyists. Um, and everyone was getting, this is in the era where everyone was getting uh, frustrated with the lack of um, concurrency support built into the language. So a lot of people were looking around and uh, Elixir was, um, you know, kind of has Ruby-ish, aesthetics it's a very very different language but you know uh comes from a lot of rubyists working on it um from the rails core team and, and whatnot um and so people were coming in wanting to know two things right i want to know all of these um uh scary abstractions that i've heard things about i want to get over that um uh, uh over that fear and i want to learn elixir so they were coming in mostly from ruby um, and I had to teach them at the same time um, uh, Elixir and, you know, functions applicable to the monad, right? Uh, so I thought, well, you know, we, we started with, um, okay, well, let's just do some, you know, live to show, you know, we have uh, things that are uh, functure-like, 
in, in Elixir, but it's not quite the same. So uh, uh, in Elixir, you have an enum package and it always outputs a list at the end. Um, and we want to get back to the same data type that we had. So wrote a functor instance and went, okay, well, this is kind of interesting. Um, what if I turn this into a, a larger project? Well, we're missing a few things in Elixir, the, all of the really classic FP stuff like um, uh, partial functions and the, they don't have an identity function, th things like this, right? Uh, so um, over the course of, a, I think, a weekend, I wrote uh, Quark, which is um, like the, the small pieces that you would put together to, you know, compose and decompose uh, functions in, uh, uh, in Elixir. And that was really had gave several people aha moments and then, okay, well, maybe I should then, you know, flesh out this uh, uh, functor and Elixir idea. And then ended up doing uh, qu quite quite a lot, like there's co-monads in there, there's all, all kinds of stuff, right? Um, uh, Semi-groups and, and, and all these things. Um, implemented do notation uh, directly in, uh, uh, in Elixir as macros. And it reads actually like, Elixir doesn't have a type system, right? But it reads pretty close. So you do have to tell it I'm in this context, right, uh, off the top. Um, but uh, it's almost almost identical to, to reading Haskell code once you're inside. Um, and uh, also went pr pretty far with that, you know, uh, abusing the macro system so that we could do some property-based checking at compile time, uh, things like that, um, doing um, they have uh, um, something like a type class, right? Uh, called a protocol, but it doesn't, you can never inherit from another one. So you can't have these, you know, towers of abstraction. Uh, so used um, uh, macros again to uh, implement checking that the instance has a, or that the type has an instance of the, you know, if you're an applicative and you set a functor, so it'll actually go and check that at compile time. So it went, went relatively far with that. Um, uh, yeah, so that, that's witchcraft. It ended up getting, uh, used, uh, like actually in production in a few places, mainly people use it for error handling, um, uh, because they, you know, people might be coming from Haskell and they want that, you know, that, that thinner error handling, uh, style. Um, I'm told that a few banks are using it, which is always scary to hear. Uh, and, um, yeah, you know, some some web projects uh, uh, as well because they can you know define their own classes and, and towers of abstraction th things like this, right? Which is uh, uh, which is always nice to hear from people. Um, the in in terms of onboarding uh, folks into FP by using this this sort of thing, um, I've found in the past couple of years, last five years in particular, um, functional idioms have become much more widespread. Um, so uh, people are mainly coming in having already seen TypeScript in particular, right? At, at, at minimum as, as a baseline. Uh, so at one point I started writing a uh, Haskell for TypeScript devs um, Git book. Uh, and just sort of like, you know, as I was teaching things, if there was something where I would, you know, write a um, comparison, here's how it would look in TypeScript, here's how it looks in Haskell, right? For somebody, and then I would just, you know, stick it in that, in that guide. Um, and, uh, that was getting, that repo was getting more stars than like almost anything else at the time, like in terms of, you know, pace. Uh, so there's definitely an appetite 
for, for learning these things. I didn't have the time to really flesh it out, but that's something that uh, uh, might be, uh, you know, I mean, I'm the, the CTO at a scrappy startup, right? So I have like no time uh, for, for such a project, but if somebody ever wanted to pick that up, I, I think that'd be really helpful for, for a lot of people. So doing these translations seems to be really, really useful. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's it's kind of co what we're doing in, in Sorocle because obviously in Sorocle we have a bunch of Haskell developers and uh, we are Haskell developers from since TypeScript, yeah, more or less since TypeScript was like the thing, right? Um, mm -hmm. So for us, we, we we constantly are producing materials like uh, TypeScript for Haskell programmers, right? So right. it would be it would actually be interesting to see if we can maybe contribute to to each other's work mm. because obviously it, it it's kind of bijective often, right? Yeah. Um, a, 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 a little like more technical question I would like to ask you mentioned mm. that you used the macros and witchcraft uh, to basically be able to uh, express constraints correct mm -hmm. yeah so this these are constraints between like different type classes right so you can make a type class here or here using using these constraints right yeah yeah um, so yeah go ahead oh, sorry yeah. well I mean uh, yeah I wanted to, to maybe for you to, to talk a little bit more about that because obvious well it's not obvious why it sounds a little like science fiction, but it's uh, it's to me it's pretty impressive. So I'm interested in like how, more or less kind of little technical details about how you achieved it. And also I'm interested, like you said, well that Elixir is not typed, but in reality, like many people um, are using Dialyzer very uh, aggressively, mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. there are of course a lot of uh, gotchas like uh, the maximum depth of uh, success typing in Dialyzer, for example, which mm -hmm. is uh, which if we want to write like recursive types, obviously it messes things up and is not producing the most, the best results. But uh, also um, I think that for many people who will, would want to have a look at witchcraft, uh, they would also mm -hmm. want to look at the dialyzer. And if you could say a couple of words about uh, how you, how it inter how, what's the interplay right now, how it's gonna be in the future, what right. do you, uh, what would you like it to be, et cetera? For sure, yeah. Uh, so let's start with uh, type classes. Um, it, it actually ends up not being uh, too difficult to implement. It's mostly just thinking outside the box. Um, so the end state, it ends up uh, producing just a, a bunch of um, protocol instances, which is just a, a language level feature, right? Um, while the macro is running, it's not that it's, you know, people generally think that a, a macro goes from AST to AST as a pure function. Um, and, and actually in, in some languages that's true, but in, um, in the case of Elixir, you can do kind of whatever, you can do side effects, um, assertions, all of these things, uh, run, run arbitrary code. Um, and so it, essentially it's, uh, looks at, okay, I've compiled so far, I'm waiting to see these modules having having been built. And when they are, um, is there a, uh, a protocol instance, which is a built-in feature in the standard library, is there a protocol instance for this type? And if there isn't, then it uh, throws an error, right? Um, with a nice message and, and all of that stuff. Um, the DSL, for doing these is, um, so you, instead of having uh, def protocol and def 
impl, I think, for implementation. You have def class and def inst, for instance, um, which then desugars into um, uh, just a regular protocol instance, right? But uh, we'll run these checks as the macro is, is running, right? Um, yeah, and, and a little note, I guess, for, for our viewers is very mind-blowing thing, perhaps, for some, is that, as far as I understand, uh, you only put def uh, insts outside of the module that you actually just defined. Is that correct? Yeah. So that they, yeah. So this is a really cool thing, right? So you have this module, you're, you're like writing a thing that should con conform to some type, type class, uh, but then you, you don't interact with like witchcraft type class system inside the module that you're writing. You, you kind of go step out, you write your def insts, and then as compiler compiles your stuff, it, it, it uh, I assume because your because the module IST for module is already in the context of compiler at the moment when it reads defenced, it will be able to basically do all the all the checks that uh, Brooklyn just described. Sorry for interruption, but I think that it's a like really cool thing that people get impressed with when they look at that like Elixir. Go ahead, sorry. Okay, yeah, uh, so so uh, exactly, and then I, you know, I was looking at like, well, there's no built-in type system. What if we added um, essentially some limited prop checking to make sure that there was, you know, you had uh, reasonable instances? And that's probably the most controversial part of this, right? That's may that's maybe a step too far um, because now your compilation, which normally in Elixir moves very very quickly, is now getting stuck running, you know, a hundred checks on each of these things, including when you've imported a library. So I have this very uh, <laughs> um, long running PR, we'll say, where I keep trying to get back to it. And then I, I look at it for 10 minutes, try to get back in context. And then, you know, I'm, uh, uh, you know, run out of time. Um, but essentially to be able to either disable those checks at compile time or turn them into test instances, test instances as instead. Um, but it only needs to run them today, the first time you compile the module, right? Uh, so when you install the package, it takes a bit of time. And then after that, it's very quick again, which is good. Um, yeah, uh, and then, uh, so yeah, that was, um, oh, right, yeah. And then the, the other uh, piece, just in case there's somebody out there listening who, who wants to, to do these things. A lot of people uh, in Elixir, you can, um, uh, you know, uh, quote some code and turn it into AST. Right, uh, and so it feels very natural to be able to write what looks like regular code, and then um, you know essentially use them as templates. I gave up on that essentially immediately um, because when you're trying to do these more um, complex things, where you're you know you're really generating uh, trans transforms between um, uh, from, from from AST to AST, uh, I just work directly in the the AST in, in, in the tuples. And it just ends up being a lot uh, easier to reason about, even though there's this initial step of, okay, I have to actually understand how the syntax works underneath. Um, and sorry, remind me again, because I, I just went on a, a giant rant about the, the internals. Yeah. What was the second part of the question? Yeah, the, the, the other bit was, uh, how does how does it relate to Dialyzer? Because people are incentivized mm -hmm. to like use them together or try to? Yes, yeah. So Dialyzer is great. It uh, it definitely has some, uh, so uh, for people that don't know what it is, it's a, a, a static analysis engine. It does a bunch of things like, you know, case checking, you know, heavy exhaust, exhaustiveness checking, things like this. And then you can also provide uh, type specs, which is like a lightweight um, optional 
and, and by optional, I mean like, you know, uh, not required uh, type declaration uh, for all of your functions. Um, and uh, run it through Dialyzer, which will then tell you, you know, hey, you've got a broken thing here and here. Um, I've found it's possible to lie to Dialyzer and it'll accept things sometimes. Uh, so it's not a hard and fast type checker like you get in ML languages, right? Um, part of the witchcraft suite, so I ended up breaking out into separate um, packages so that people could use, you know, only the bits that they, they cared about. Uh, one of them is LG, which is short for algebraic data types. Um, Elixir doesn't have um, it in particular some types. Uh, so it's both provides a DSL for like a, a macro for um, building um, uh, product types that have their, their type specs in line. So it looks a little bit more like a, uh, a Haskell record, right? Um, and that'll also generate the type spec. And then also for some type, um, which is something that's just not natively, doesn't exist in the language, uh, will produce sub-modules that have their own structs, uh, even if it's a single field struct or, or uh, has no fields in it, right? It's really just tags at that point. Uh, and then produces a uh, a type spec that can represent, okay, here's the, the sum that this represents. The actual typing out of that, or, you know, the, the expansion of that macro is very, very noisy, right? So you end up with a lot of extra um, uh, detail, sub-modules, uh, type specs, and having to balance all that in your head. So this ends up being a really nice way of expressing this idea, um, which then plugs in very well into dialyzer because at the end of the day you you now have a, a, a regular dialyzer type spec uh, that you can run run through it um and they do yeah, have and as far a as I understand, vertical bar pipe yeah yeah as far as i understand it also if if for example if you have like uh like result or either with left and right mm -hmm. then you can plug in uh in you can type spec in your functions that you're writing using vshraft uh like both either.t and left.t and right.t and if you if you write like it will basically dialyzer is will complain if you put right into left and mm -hmm. will be happy if you if you type out something as either it will accept either left or right is yes. that is that correct yeah so that's yeah. also pretty sweet so so you get uh one layer extra that you wouldn't see in say haskell right where you can say this is a right and not a left, right? And you can you can type that because Dialyzer doesn't un understand really, right? Um, unless you refuse to export one of the, the sides, right? Um, which is actually you know perhaps an advantage, right? This is you know an, uh, more, more like an open union sort of, right? Um, uh, but yeah, it, exactly. So it ends up bringing this feature that we don't really have. And because uh, Elixir has this, you know, it, it's really in a lot of ways, it's a lisp with a different syntax, right? So you can extend the language in these ways. Um, it's uh, really uh, super expressive um, that you can then uh, bring in these new, these new patterns and, and express them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I guess my, my final uh, question about the technical details before we, we step out, uh, like in the stack trace mm -hmm. or something, uh, is uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm, I might be too stupid, but I didn't figure out a way how to express, how to 
how do you how do you convince dialyzer that what uh, type class sorry what algae spits out uh, mm-hmm. can be parameterized with the type variable so like is there a way to tell like dialyzer oh this is like either of binary and this is either of int yeah so we haven't um, built that in yet uh, at some point you start looking at it being like how 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 far am I gonna go right um, there have been a couple times I've, I've heard from a few people that have um, a few companies actually that that have been exploring adding a um, gradual type system to elixir like in, into the base language there's a couple um, type languages for the, the underlying virtual machine the, the beam um, but people want it specifically in elixir because that's the one that has most of the mind share right um, and you know this would have been a few years ago the last time I, I heard about su- such an effort um, and nothing has surfaced yet so I'm not actually not sure what the, the the state of that is. It would be conceptually possible to do in macros with the existing system, right? Um, there's where you would essentially copy the type spec and then insert in uh, where there's the ennies right now. Uh, you'd insert in the thing that you're actually looking for. Um, it's... So yeah, it, it's doable. I'm not sure how, uh, I guess on two fronts, one, how many people would actually use it uh, in, in Elixir, right? And then two, it's at that point, it's like, well, should we just go down a layer and add this into uh, into the language directly or give it some better support rather than try to do everything directly in um, in a library? So, right. Yeah. yeah, and again, for, for people who might not be aware, Dialyzer was not designed together with Erlang, which is the parent language for Elixir. It was later uh, designed and developed by a research group in Uppsala University, led by Konstantinas Sagonas, I think. I I always confuse his first name. And uh, it's, in my opinion, it's a wonderful tool, but of course it's rough around edges and edge cases. And uh, yeah, this is one of those. It's very encouraging to hear that um, uh, it's possible that you see it's possible, and actually, that now that you described the idea for implementation, I think I might have some pet project to do. Uh, yeah, because I would for sure make use of it because it's it kind of feels a little weird, right? You have all this very tight, uh, um, very nice ways to express which function in your code takes what uh, type, but then the moment you want to kind of handle errors, you kind of go away into result or either. And then you're like, mm-hmm. oh, now I lose all this information. It's kind of a little weird. And in the uh, in and the depth of one is something dialyzer can cope with. So it's uh, yeah. I think that this is this would be very nice uh, to 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 go just one layer deeper. Uh, yeah. At least in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, actually on on this topic, um, as I've mentioned now maybe a, a couple times uh, that there's a few things in witchcraft that I would just love to see get built um but i've uh, gone the startup route which means that essentially all my free time gets sucked up by the startup right um uh if anybody is looking for a side project doesn't even have to be maintaining the entire thing but you know is looking for a side project wants to pick up some issues wants to contribute back um uh you know i've set it up now in its own organization happy to give people permissions right um there's a couple of people that have been poking around uh, doing some maintenance. 
Um, and uh, mostly I've been feeling guilty the, the past couple of years of being like, I just need to get back there and fix a couple things. But um, uh, at the end of the day, it's a community project. So if anybody's interested, um, please uh, uh, drop me a line. And uh, I'm sure we can yeah, I mean, it, it, it works actually so you shouldn't be you shouldn't feel guilty um and uh also like you, you were describing the path of you creating um witchcraft and i'm kind of looking back to to my practice with with elixir and i understand that okay i always uh w- w- would carry this module that i call din hacks like d- dynamic hacks mm. uh mm-hmm. from project to project which had like f map which had constant which had a id everything mm-hmm. you know you need to like but uh, obviously it was not pushed far enough for it to be a library and um, I, when i learned about witchcraft i was like wow that's that's that can deprecate din hacks but i mean i still have both witchcraft and din hacks because sometimes i don't want to think too hard right <laughs> yeah. To... um yeah speaking of thinking too hard so i i see i see that uh, i think uh, in witchcraft repository, you use term deep functional programming, right? And mm-hmm. I really, I th- I think I understand it, um, but yeah, I would like you, exp- I would like you to explain it in your own words, and uh, maybe yeah, and I'll have some follow up questions about that notion. Yeah, uh, so it's, I mean, really a uh, ad hoc phrase, right? Uh, I was looking for okay, well, FP, there's lots of different. Uh, techniques. Uh, there's several families of languages underneath, right? You know, we've been talking here, you know, Haskell and Elixir feel very different, right? At, at, a, at a high level, right? Um, uh, even from, you know, the point of view, you know, uh, Elixir wasn't designed to be a pure functional programming language. It was designed to solve problems at Ericsson, right? Um, so they and happens to end up in uh, with a lot of FP flavor, right? But uh, it's it's certainly not a, a pure language. In fact, the, the whole uh, VM is really oriented around side effects, right? So um, deep functional programming is sort of a placeholder because I don't have a better term for, um, you know, using particular abstractions, going really deep with, um, uh, you know, Calling something like, you know, these are algebraic languages, uh, A, scares people off, and B, um, there's lots of things that are algebraic outside of algebraic data types, right? Um, so like, it's... Like SQL databases. Yeah, sure, exa- exactly. Um, and uh, so it's really trying to just capture this idea of the part that most people think is scary, right, is, is this, this these, these deep techniques. Um, where it's not the first thing you have to learn when doing FP. Um, uh, I think it's, um, yeah, I, I think it's the um, uh, Fantasyland Institute, the people that used to run, uh, or maybe they still do, run LambdaConf, uh, used to have a uh, list of, you know, here's um, beginner, intermediate, and advanced FP concepts. and. You know, let's say, yeah, that's like r- roughly the, tra- the trajectory for a lot of people. So this is more the like deep FP is more the intermediate and beyond um, uh, area. Right. Um, okay. Um, so uh, would you say that like um, you mentioned how 
uh, over the past five years, you you, you noticed like uh, that uh, this concept from from like higher higher order functions, I guess, and etc. Uh, mm -hmm. become more mainstream. So would you mm -hmm. say that uh, would you say that uh, kind of the uh, the waterline. Where, where would you put the waterline for for the for the deep uh, uh, functional programming compared to 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 the to the sinking ship of uh, imperative programming? I guess that's my question. Yeah. Um, so I, I I think it partly depends on. Cause, I mean, pr programming is so broad, right? And there's so many people. It partly depends on the, the particular subculture, right? Um, but looking around at you know, there's a lot of um, uh, packages in the Node ecosystem, right, or in NPM uh, that implement these things. There are people that would like to write OCaml or Haskell or, or whatever that want to bring some of these concepts back in. Um, there's a version of these, you know, as, as I like to joke about them, uh, Haskell fan fiction libraries in essentially every language now, right? Um, so a lot of people are getting exposed to these ideas, right? You know, absolutely true. Um, we're also seeing them start to end up in other places. Um, Ink and Switch, which is a, a industrial research uh, lab, um, has um, you know sort of repurposed bidirectional lenses uh, for doing schema management, right? Between you know ar arbitrary schemas. Um, it's a little bit, you know, they're using a slight variation from say the lens library, but still it's like this basic idea. Um, in Swift, I saw somebody had ported um, partial combinators, right? Because it ends up being a really nice um, uh, way of working once you understand them, right? Like there's a learning curve, but once you understand them, it ends up being uh, a really nice way of working. So uh, more people are getting exposed to these things. And when you have a background already in something like just you know, the, the absolute classics, right? Map filter reduce, um, or understanding that you can build your own higher order functions, um, or that there's relationships between different things that are more principled, and put that in big scare quotes, right? Um, uh, there's at least now a foothold and a jumping off point and not having to go to the gang of four OO uh, patterns and say, well, it's kind of like a, you know, uh, facade or something like that, right? And saying, you know, here's the actual underlying idea. It's a little bit like these other things you've already been exposed to is super helpful. So even in um, both the uh, functional programming group here, which I should probably also specify, it sounds like it's mostly, you know, Brooke shows up and, and teaches a bunch of people about FP. Um, there, we were running, um, you know, pre-pandemic, pre uh, we're running, um, uh, various language learning groups. There's, you know, Haskell learning group, we had a closure learning group, things like that. Um, and then, uh, you know, events where people could come and just present, you know, a, a topic or an idea that they're working on. So there was pretty much, you know, it was uh, uh, really intended to be this pipeline where you could take people from absolute beginner all the way through to um, uh, pretty advanced, right? Uh, with a lot of these things. And it got, in the past few years, again, it's hard to say in the, the past two years in particular, right? But the, the past several years, um, much, much easier just because people had seen this stuff before. There's more learning resources. There's more books. Um, typically people will have taken a run at this kind of thing before trying them out. Um, and, uh, so at, at one point I was, uh, consulting at a company that was doing a lot of, um, uh, TypeScript 
and they would run into problems. I'd say, oh, well, you know, there, there's a solution for that. And here it is like, oh, wow, that looks really elegant. I'm like, I know it's a monad, right? It's a scary thing that you've been, you know, uh, uh, running away from. And he, here's an actual use case. And now you have a practical application of it because you're working in a typed language with higher order functions that you're trying to kind of, you know, move in this direction. You don't have as, as much help from the compiler to do it, but you can, right? Um, so yeah, it's become just way easier. And I, I like the metaphor you're using of, you know, there's this <laughs> sinking ship and then this, you know, r rising uh, uh, water line. Um, uh, as people get exposed to things like, you know, I think Rust is going to be huge in uh, the next, you know, couple years. Um, and, you know, it doesn't have, uh, you know, exact feature for feature uh, from, say, you know, Haskell, but there is a lot of higher, higher order function uh, stuff happening there, right? So, um, and people getting exposed to types as well. Uh, so I think it's only going to become easier. And this, uh, um, you know, uh, Simon Peyton Jones uh, says, uh, it's not just about, you know, the idea for Haskell isn't that it should be the number one language, it should influence all of the language, other, other languages, hopefully, right? And I think it's been tremendously successful at that. When you look at all, you know, both the, the, the fan fiction and then the, the language features that we're seeing in, you know, very mainstream languages today. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then Haskell isn't stopping uh, with, with the linear types, with the dependent types. Yeah. I mean, with, with Rust, um, it's, uh, it's an interesting uh, observation, but I think that Rust is a very, to me, writing in Rust is kind of... Um, like living in the Chirut jail in a way, because uh, <laughs> yep. you know, like in Haskell, in Haskell, when you have like linear types, you you are the person who says, okay, this part of my uh, code will be like a fine or or linear. And in Rust, it's like you are dropped in this a fine environment, and then you are you kind of have to cope with it somehow, uh, which mm -hmm. is I mean, which is great for for the design goals of the language. But uh, I'm very kind of cautious to recommend Rust as like first exposure to functional programming necessarily, mm -hmm. because there's like yeah. so much more stuff to understand. Um, yep. Yeah, but but certainly implement like, um, I mean, I don't know how uh, you, you, by the way, maybe this is the, the a question to you. Maybe you can tell us how, how easy it is to like do PLT from ground up. You know how like back in 2003, three five we had like linux from scratch project right so i wonder if, mm. if we have something like plt from scratch uh these days but actually maybe uh telling students to implement their own tiny rust that would be a, a, a very interesting uh study group project uh yeah, yeah. but yeah what, what do you think about how how feasible it is uh, how how easy it is for people these days to to implement like a programming language and how would you go about making a study group, let's say, for like intermediate students to, to do that. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it, it depends on the language that you're trying to do. Uh, someone a few years ago was writing a uh, Haskell from scratch, I think, um, which is an interesting read. Um, writing, you know, a toy language is not uh, a super difficult um, task, right? Once, once you understand the, the basic concepts. Um, it's actually something that I would uh, give people uh, as an interview question often as something that they, assuming that they'd never seen it before, right? Because when interviewing, I want to see how their brain works with uh, just 
you know, out of left field questions. So, you know, here, here's a, a really simple um, Turing complete language. You know, it has six uh, symbols or something. Um, write write a, a small compiler for this. You don't have to get to the very end of it. Just like I want to see the, the thought process. And you know, honestly, a lot of people would get to the end, um, and you know, not it would not take them long, right? Um, going further and implementing. Uh, types and optimization and all of this stuff. Um, I don't think it's uh, an insurmountable task uh, to, to teach, really, because it's all of these things have enough history that um, the the concepts are, are quite clear, right? Um, and you can go really as, de as deep as you like and get into cost dynamics and right, you know all of this stuff. But uh, a PLT from scratch, oh yeah, that, that sounds like a great project. I'd love. Again, when I have time again, I would love to do something like that. Or if somebody wants to um, uh, to write that, uh, I, I would love to be a, a reviewer on it because that's just, you know, uh, a super interesting uh, project, right? Um, the other one that I think is really useful and that uh, I've given a couple talks on now is just getting people exposure to more idioms, right? So, you know, we've got uh, imperative, OO, functional, and um, you know deductive languages like prolog, for example, that people have just never seen, or um, APL, right? They've just never seen this before. Um, and trying to break people out of here's the patterns that you're used to, and into you know like let's let's get a little bit more flexible and think about computation broadly, right? Um, is also very helpful, also for uh, when evaluating languages and um, and and writing them as well, saying like oh, I'll take a little bit here from the you know um from uh, array programming and i'll take a little bit from here from you know lisp and and so on oh yeah and for sure like uh, allowing students or people in general to think about uh, stuff in terms of computation also makes it easier for them to think about uh, novel approaches in computation such as like quantum computing or uh, mm -hmm. my, my my favorite topic as reversible computing where instead mm -hmm. of having hardware that just goes you know that forgets about stuff it keeps track of all all the computation that happened historically in hardware and then ecological computing maybe someday and uh, uh yeah anyway so uh yeah that's that these are fair points i mean uh plt from scratch would be would be ideally of course what, what, what i'm what when I'm, when i'm thinking about how it would ideally be it would, should be something like lego right something that what you said exactly, right? We we have a lot of concepts that are well studied, well understood, and we wouldn't want to waste our time on like re-implementing them for the fifth, five hundredth maybe time, to get to the interesting bit. So perhaps some sort of like Lego-like constructor-like uh, framework to mm -hmm. kind of like um, oh that's that's a that's a very smooth segue to to that uh, cryptocurrencies Web three stuff that, that we should. Uh, <laughs> We should cover, I think, a little bit. Um, kind of like this. Um, there was this project, like one of the first proof of stake uh, cryptocurrencies ever, was like a research cryptocurrency made in Scala or something. And it was very, it was built like a framework. So basically, you could take it and you could change like aspects of your consensus algorithm or like topologies it would work with, and a lot of a lot of that sort of stuff. Um, without really like tinkering with 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 all the kind of boring beats like 
blocks, block minting and block hashes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, storage, databases, compression. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, something like that for, for, for PLT would be really cool. I wish there was as much money in PLT as in... <laughs> anyway, so uh, so yeah, let's let's talk about Web three now. Uh, what is it actually? I I'll 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 give a little bit of a background. Okay, so uh, my I'm I'm very uh, active. Like I stopped. I, I can't tolerate Twitter anymore. I don't know why. I don't know. Maybe the lost tolerance to toxicity or something, I don't know. But I switched to like Fediverse, Mastodon and, and, and platforms like this. And basically like 90% of my feed these days is people saying how like Bitcoin kills puppies or something and how like Web3 is, you know, BS, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, to be completely honest, uh, many of actual arguments that, that, that are made in my feed on Mastodon to me, look kind of appealing. It it kind of and and uh, coming from cryptocurrency uh, background, of course, I know how much of uh, you know uh, questionable substances are floating all on the surface of 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 of, of, of this modern technologies. So, um, but I honestly I don't quite understand what 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 Web three means. So, uh, yeah, if you can put it in a positive light <laughs> or uh, <laughs> repel the, the common uh, arguments against it, that would be really nice. Yeah. Uh, so I agree with some of the negative comments uh, about it. So let's, let's get into a nuanced discussion here. Um, Web3 is uh, definitely broader than blockchains. Um, we've been using the term for... I mean, I, so I entered the like broad space in uh, 2017, uh, 2016, 2017, somewhere there, um, like working on it professionally, not just playing around with things on the side. Um, I uh, was working at a, or was brought in to work at a, a, a fintech company that was doing, um, uh, you know, uh, stocks and bonds, securities um, uh, on the blockchain cross-border, all regulated. Uh, and they needed a programming language that was uh, formally verifiable, but also legible to a lawyer, right? So a, a non-developer lawyer has to be able to read this thing, and it also had to be able to produce um, uh, verifiably correct um, code, right? That, that would then run, and we would be able to plug in things like, you know, here's the regulations in um, the U.S., here's the regulations in South Korea, and they have to, you know, overlap, and then plus all the extra logic for the, the particular um uh, for the particular stock, let's say, right? Um, and uh, as I, I sometimes like to say, the, the point that we got to was the uh, the unholy union of uh, Prolog and Cobol, right? Because <laughs> it was essentially uh, a business language with, with constraints. Um, so even going uh, back then, we were using this term broadly of uh, Web3, um, which was coined by somebody in, yeah, the, the blockchain space. If you take a step back and look at the broader picture of, of what's happening as this um, uh, potentially a, a general generational shift, right? Because Web 3.0 used to be semantic web, right? So like, we'll, we'll see where, where these things go. Um, the overarching idea is we're trying to return the web to its original founding principles. So the when the W3C was, um, uh, was created, they had five um, main uh, 
values, right? Decentralization, non-discrimination, bottom-up design, universality, and consensus. Consensus in a, in a different sense, right? Of, of people actually running things, not consensus as a distributed systems mechanism. But uh, that's, those all hold very strongly for this community of people that are working on things. So I say that's larger than blockchain. It also includes things like, um, uh, and we'll, I'm sure that we'll, we'll dive into a few of these in a moment, right? But uh, what some people call distributed web or, or D-web, right? Uh, where you can self-host uh, data or have it be um, uh, hosted in many places and you can retrieve data by its, uh, by its hash. So a little bit like uh, BitTorrent. In fact, BitTorrent probably fits uh, under the, the broad category of Web3 as well. It just started before the, the term. Um, uh, yeah, blockchains are in there. They are one tool of many as we're moving towards uh, a world that has more, I mean, the entire web is a distributed system, but using more and more uh, distributed systems uh, techniques and uh, developments and making things uh, self-verifying. Self Right, just kind of the, the broad um, uh, technical um, uh, unifying theme, right? So, um, and having users be able to control their data rather than uh, the big cloud providers. So I don't know about you, but I don't wanna see uh, Amazon, uh, Microsoft and Google own all of infrastructure for all of the future, right? Uh, and there, there's some people, you know, Cloudflare and Fastly and, and a few others, Fly.io that are working on um, uh, you know, doing things at the edge, but it's a really difficult um, challenge to go up against the, you know, 10,000 pound gorilla, which is Amazon or, you know, AWS, who will just put in data centers wherever you are, right? Um, and these technologies fundamentally say, okay, well, things don't live in one particular location. They're owned by the user. They can be completely local. They can be offline and continue to work. Um, and uh, we're not saying no to AWS. AWS could absolutely participate, but so could everyone else. I could use my excess uh, computing resources to serve files or run computation or whatever. Um, the big complaints, the two main complaints, I think, with blockchains in particular um, are uh, there's a lot of scams, which is true, and there's uh, proof of work is um, uses a horrendous amount of energy, which is also true, right? So a uh, huge number of scams. Yep, absolutely. There's lots of scams in, in the world broadly. This is unifying FinTech with, you know, uh, more um, uh, distributed um, uh, systems geeks, right? So you end up with this area that is really focused around uh, today around money. There's more applications to this because really what it is is global distributed consensus. Right, it is a way of of everyone getting on the same page about some piece of data. But that's not the only way to do these things, right? You might not need global. Everyone's on the same page about what the state is, right? Um, you might have a more uh, granular thing that you know only two parties are doing, and now you don't need a, a blockchain at all. Um, but yeah, uh, scams exist. They're already regulated, right? Like Ponzi schemes are illegal, right? Um, so. Uh, those um, and you need to be careful when um, uh, you know buying anything online. Really, it's just there's been so much uh, upside for people in the past couple of years that they're heavily incentivized to make risky action, actions potentially, right? So that's the the scary portion there. That absolutely needs to 
to get taken care of. And if there's a market crash, uh, maybe we can get, get, get back to building things again, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, proof of work. Um, yeah, and you know, if there's any uh, Bitcoin maximalists uh, listening to this, they're, they're really not gonna like what I have to say here. Um, uh, proof of work uh, uses a lot of electricity, is actually not that secure. Um, and uh, most projects, except for Bitcoin, are moving off of it, right? So um, when I say it's less secure, I mean, there's this flywheel where you make money from mining Bitcoin, and then you can use that to buy more um, graphics cards, to mine more Bitcoin. And over time, this centralizes into a few providers, right? So you end up with, even though everybody can participate, you end up with a couple of really big providers that are really calling the shots about what's getting in, what, what isn't. So the other two systems, proof of stake, which is more of a voting um, uh, system um, and uses uh, social and, and economic um, systems instead of burning processor cycles uh, to, um, to secure the network, it does still tend to lead to uh, a handful of people um, owning most of the um, uh, what's going to happen or not um, on the consensus mechanism, but it's actually, you can design that to be more equal. And then there's a bunch of effort going to things like proof of history, which is just using, uh, hashing, um, recursive hashing to, um, uh, to, you know, see how, how far whoever has the, the highest hash wins. And then everybody can synchronize against that, uh, immediately because now they have the latest hash and we can just keep going, which is an interesting, uh, solution. So there's lots of people that are trying to make this way less energy in intensive. Um, and uh, so I think that that's a, a potential future. Um, but again, without wanting to overfocus on on blockchains and, and broadly digital scarcity, and we could have an entire podcast about that, I'm sure. Um, uh, tools like IPFS or DAFs um, uh, or secure Scuttlebutt SSB, you know, let you um, are the the early picks and shovels, right? This is all early stuff for um, liberating data from a particular location, having uh, essentially a, a CDN that's based on who's looked at something recently, kind of like how BitTorrent works in a collaborative setting. Um, and you can extend this to all kinds of things. Like why am I, if we're gonna talk about electric, uh, electric usage, right? Um, why am I recomputing um, solutions to problems over and over again, when somebody else has probably run that computation before in, in a lot of applications. What if we could post our um, subcomputations even, and then now we have a, a giant memoization table that we can start pulling data out of, right? Um, and the more people that participate in such a network, the more efficient it gets, right? So this is all stuff that's really uh, on the edge in, in every uh, sense of the term, but uh, that is, very much under the umbrella of um, uh, of Web three and where Web three is trying to go. Yeah, and uh, also it's uh, the the global memoization table that you have mentioned is a a little bit uh, goes a little bit hand in hand, maybe pinky and pinky with with reversible computing hardware, right? So it's. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be really sweet. I actually I actually learned about reversible computing from obsessing, like perhaps overly obsessing over the fact that, uh, okay, I write normal, uh, normalized uh, structures, 
be it text or be it uh, like data structures or code or ASTs or something like that. And I have parsers from those to some expressions in memory. So if I only mm -hmm. use normalized uh, stuff and I'm okay with normalized stuff, why does my parser library not generate bijective functions straight away? Like, what's the problem? Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I was, I was reading a lot about this and uh, well, there are some problems, but uh, yeah, this is how I learned about uh, reversal computing. But certainly if, uh, if, I, if I put on, I don't know, IPFS saying, well, I parsed like this hash and got this uh, result and you can query me uh, and I'll tell you what were the inputs and outputs and you can hopefully somehow verify that I'm not cheating you then uh, um, mm -hmm. yeah that would be that could be rather sweet um, so basically uh, so I pose as a person who doesn't uh, know anything about web3 so but I'm also uh, let's say using verifiable credentials in my projects does it mean that I'm part mm -hmm. of the movement uh, uh, yeah, um, absolutely. So verifiable credentials um, are a W3C spec um, for uh, asserting things about a, um, uh, a person or an organization. So uh, the, the really classic example is uh, today... Well, any any subject, to... really, like a table or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, the, the really classic example today is, you know, you want to... Um, uh, go to a bar, you need to be 18 years of age or older, and you show them your driver's license. And your driver's license is also your home address and you know a bunch of other information about you. So what this lets you do is the government can sign something that says this person is over 18, not even your age, just like literally this person is over 18. Uh, they have a private key that they can prove that um, they have some information that nobody else does. And now you have um, uh, a verifiable credential that's signed by the, you know, the government in this case. Um, which is actually something that um, in uh, uh, the, the province where Vancouver is in, in British Columbia, um, the government here is already doing these things, right? Uh, so this is happening for sure. It's a, a, you know, a, a useful uh, thing. And you, you know, when you think Web3 and governments together, people usually go, no, it's like it's the weird hackers that are doing you know, Bitcoin. It's like, no, government's absolutely doing these things too. It is a... Um, system that is um, local first, so it, it doesn't have to go to uh, a database necessarily. In some cases, yes. Some cases, no. It's self-verifying, right? Um, and is uh, protecting more information about your uh, more of your personal information, which I think is something that we're as a society coming to realize is really important stuff, right? So uh, yeah, absolutely, Verifi verifiable credentials, decentralized identities, DIDs, um, which uh, uh, typically go together, um, are absolutely part of um, uh, Web3 broadly. Um, there's a lot of interesting uh, work happening on both of these at the Decentralized Identity Foundation, uh, DIF. Um, and this is part of, I think, why people have a hard time with the term Web3 is, uh, the scams and the coins are the ones that are getting all the, the media attention. Uh, and in the past couple of months in particular, it has shifted to mean more that, whereas it used to be a broader term. Um, and I'm hoping we get back to the broader term because there's all these other interesting things that have nothing to do with um, uh, with those, those other bits. We use uh, DIDs pretty heavily at Fission um, to reverse, uh, both to make uh, apps work completely offline and to reverse uh, the control. User creates a, a key pair in the browser 
the Web Crypto API lets you have a non-exportable key. Um, so nobody can take your key and, and run off with it. It's more secure, at least. Uh, and then they register with other services. So they'll register with, say, you know, today, Fission service to say, hey, please store my stuff, which is all encrypted and the user has encrypted it, right? So it ends up being um, these both, uh, you know, verifiable, things like verifiable credentials, which are a form of digital scarcity, right? We can say that this is an individual person and I can verify it directly um, and nobody else has that. And also the privacy and uh, uh, user control aspects uh, are, are really core to, uh, to Web3. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I asked about verifiable credentials for a good reason. As uh, recently, I was trying to understand uh, how, how are we doing authentication in 2021? Mm -hmm. Well, 2020, mm -hmm. whatever. And um, I was reading, well, okay, well, we still have this identity providers. And I was like, what? Why? <laughs> what does it even mm -hmm. mean for why? Why someone is providing my identity to me? Like what? Uh, wh and mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about you know how people say, well, okay, we need to go passwordless and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that uh, this all is irrelevant. What is relevant is, as you say, uh, seeing who has to own which data. Like my data has to be owned by me and we have very dumb cryptographic primitives to allow me to do so. And the fact that they are very dumb is not is like not a bug; it's a feature. When you when you said about oh, government will say will sign that I'm over 18, and someone would ask like oh, why I want to use threshold signature? Well, I mean, because maybe my cryptographic suite doesn't implement uh, you know threshold signatures, right? I'll I'll just yeah. And this is so. And and when I was researching this subject, I found out about DIDs, which I ended up not using. But uh, yeah. I also found out about uh, verifiable credentials. And I was like, well, wait a sec. This just makes sense, right? And you can mm -hmm. implement this in, in one evening and deploy to your, mm -hmm. to your whatever startup, to your uh, mm -hmm. you know, authentication system. Even I integrated it with this Ruby, whatever. I don't remember the name. Yeah. So, so uh, I mean, again, I, I don't know much about Web3, but it doesn't uh, seem like... Uh, Web3 people are evil. Uh, look at Brooklyn. <laughs> how, can, how can you say? <laughs> anyway. Right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's what um, we want you to think. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, uh, let's wrap it up before we go to questions. Uh, please tell us a little bit more about uh, Fusion, about what you're doing, anything you want to plug, anything you want to call our uh, listeners to contribute to. The floor is yours. Yeah, uh, thanks. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Fission, um, my uh, my company, my startup, uh, is um, a applied research company working on um, developing uh, uh, local first and uh, user controlled applications that don't need things like Kubernetes to run. So everything happens directly on device, like at, at the client in the browser or, or you know in the native app. Um, and uh, um, you can then, once you've solved those hard problems, right, uh, you can then walk these things back up into an edge data center or into the cloud and, and uh, you know, really anywhere. We're making all these things um, location independent, user controlled, encrypted at rest, right? Um, so that, you know, as a 
the service provider portion of the company. We don't even know what somebody uh, uh, is storing with us and they could also store it with multiple people and that's actually or multiple providers and that that's fine and that, that all works. Um, and it's essentially the idea is get rid of your backend. It's, uh, for those of you, since we've talked so much about Elixir here, if you've seen um, Phoenix Live View, it's almost like the, the direct inversion of that, where instead of everything happening on the servers, now everything's happening on the client and you can you know, progressively sync the, the data in the background. Um, everything that we're, we're working on is pretty cutting edge and pretty early. Uh, so we're uh, definitely looking for people to try it out, uh, find the things that don't work, um, and things that they might find surprising. Uh, so we're at fission.codes um, and uh, uh, our, uh, which has links to essentially everywhere, including our, our, our GitHub. Um, and our Discord is um, fission.codes slash Discord. And that'll get you uh, uh, an invite and the link directly. Um, and the other thing that I want to plug is we're uh, going to be starting up a distributed systems reading group. This is something that we've had a few people um, uh, ask for, people that are either interested in learning about it uh, uh, at all, like as a complete beginner, or people that want to just have other people to geek out with. Um, so we're not really sure what the level is going to be yet, but uh, if you go to uh, lu.ma slash vision codes, uh, there's the distributed systems reading group uh, in there. And we're going to be looking at some uh, classic papers to get started and then maybe some uh, more uh, uh, bleeding edge stuff uh, in uh, a month or two. Awesome. I went there right away. I'll, I'll <laughs> try my best to be Great. first to sign up from our uh, audience. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, so let's go to questions. Uh, but uh, before doing so, I would like to remind our uh, listeners, uh, and we have so many platforms now, so I need to wrap my head around what to say. But anyway, so put us into your RSS feed, put us into your like YouTube subscriptions list, whatever, because uh, we're doing it for the audience. We're trying to invite uh, cool people who are doing uh, stuff in programming language theory, who are making cool libraries, uh, who are just in general, like uh, who, whom we consider or uh, some of you who ask us to invite someone to consider to be like great thinkers of the modern time. And uh, uh, yeah, like um, if, 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 if not for the uh, audience of our uh, podcast, we wouldn't be doing that. So show us some love and uh, I hope that uh, you enjoyed this episode. So let's go to questions. Question number one is, what makes Haskell special to compared to Rust? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think this is a comparison that's going to get drawn a lot over the next couple years. Um, there, you know, I, I've been working more in Rust, especially as we're doing more things with WebAssembly. Um, and it's sort of, you know, like the, uh, the WebAssembly language, really, um, at, at least in 2022. Um, and yeah, there's some, some surface level things that feel very similar, right? Um, you know, uh, uh, having a, a type system really, you know, at, at, at all, um, having, uh, uh, doing a lot of things with, um, uh, you know, case statements and, and destructuring and, and all of that as a workflow. Uh, despite the, the syntax being very different, but uh, and both of them having really, really good concurrency, right? So those are some of the, the similarities. Um, major differences uh, in Rust, you get mired in a lot of detail that you just maybe 
don't care about, right? Because it's, it's a much lower level language. Uh, Haskell is garbage collected for better or worse. Uh, and that means that you can be really, you know, uh, on a, um, uh, you know, uh, not have to worry about uh, as, as many of those factors. Um, uh, it's, you know, I, I mentioned before, you know, uh, Rust has some, you know, higher order function, you know, capabilities. Um, that's a, a little bit of a lie, right? Uh, it, it has, um, uh, it doesn't have like full blown um, uh, anonymous functions that you can just, you know, plug in whatever, right? Uh, Haskell has more functional, um, uh, traditional functional cap capabilities. Um, and has more facility for abstraction. So uh, actually, I don't know if Rust has uh, landed higher kind of types yet, but I know that they're they're at minimum working on it. Um, and Haskell just has you know thirty years of history, uh, and and Rust doesn't. Um, so there's a lot of effort going into Rust right now. Um, I uh, I will be surprised if it doesn't become the uh, like the language of the 2020s. Um, because it really hits this nice point in the design space, but uh, Haskell gives you a uh, maybe a, a cleaner experience, um, not having to worry about as much of the de detail and more uh, essentially unlimited abstraction. Yeah, and also uh, our uh, regular viewers know that uh, I, I personally cannot implement breadth-first search in Rust but uh, I can't do it in Haskell, so Hus Haskell must be a little bit simpler. Anyway, so uh, our next question is, uh, okay, our, our next question is really passive aggressive. It goes like this, well, well, how do you explain monads to beginners? <laughs> um, how? Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the short, Short version is uh, uh, not another uh, monad tutorial, right? Um, I, I think it's a, uh, a stereotype for a, a reason. People understand it, then they, they have to go write the tutorial and explain to everybody how, how the thing works. Um, the I don't think that there's any shortcuts for monads, right? People need to get experience with them. The best way to start that is by saying, okay, well, you know, this is a lot like, you know, let's implement. Um, uh, error handling, let's uh, show you some uh, async code. Hey, you know, it's interesting how you can use promises in JavaScript and then you have this async await thing. Isn't that interesting how those de-sugar into each other, right? And so people can then start bootstrapping up um, some understanding there, having them use the bind operator, right? And then having them do de-sugaring and, and re-sugaring, I guess, in, into do notation, just giving them some of those, like turn this into bind and turn this into do and going back and forth like that, really helpful. Um, and just getting them experience, you know, this is how we, the point of a monad isn't the monad itself, right? It's the little languages that we can build with them and then snap them together, right? That's the, the, the benefit of, the, of these things. So just showing them a whole bunch of them just like you know, async await versus promises, we can now apply that to a bunch of other things and write our own, and that helps. Um, but again, there's really no shortcuts. Um, you can't explain it over a coffee. People have, they just haven't seen something like this before and they just, you have to learn by doing, I think. Yeah, and um, um, in my opinion, if a, if a person is studying Haskell specifically, then actually the the, like the approach from real world Haskell when we look first at IO monad mm -hmm. and yeah. 
kind of because it's it's Haskell is really great. Like uh, SPJ has this very short, uh, almost a TikTok that is, that is like uh, Haskell is useless or something like that, where he mm-hmm. where he speaks about well well go watch it. I, I won't spoil it. But anyway, so Haskell <laughs> you can't you, you can't with with basic Haskell. Right, you can't. You almost can't do anything. Right, you can't print anything on the screen, etc. So, um, and and if and if a student is like stoic enough to to tolerate the fact that uh, you know Haskell is useless, then it's it's kind of inevitable for them to 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 get into I/O, and as a side effect, no pun intended, you can also you know tack onto it like. A little bit more generalized notion, and maybe talk about the history of I/O, how it was before uh, before I/O Monad, and kind of like unwrap the intuitions from there. But I completely agree with Brooklyn. No matter which technology you're using, you have to build up intuition here. You, you can't just like throw some definitions and then be like, oh well, that's that's it. Yeah, and and the the other thing that I think is that we just haven't talked about in, in this context and very few people talk, talk about uh, is um, it's very, um, you have somebody who often, you know, uh, has a lot of experience already and maybe in a different, different area of programming. You know, they're a really fantastic Rubyist, let's say, right? Um, and now they're trying something and they feel stupid for the first time in a long time and having empathy with, it's okay, I felt like this too, it's fine, we'll get there. Right. And, you know, just it, you don't have to get this right away. Right. We're going to do some exercises and this is achievable uh, helps a lot because people get stuck in this loop of I must be an idiot when oh, yeah. it's nothing to be further from the truth. For sure. Yeah. And, and certainly, yeah. Uh, yeah, as we as we briefly mentioned, like approaching this with as much of a beginner's mind as possible is absolutely yeah. crucial. Um, and OK, final question is. Uh, uh, Again, about Rust and Haskell. Um, speaking of Rust being really famous, isn't it very sad that Haskell is not becoming the next thing instead of Rust? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, very, uh, very sad. Yes, uh, and I think Rust will expose a lot more people to Haskell. Uh, I actually think that there will be a pipeline there um, because it's really, in a lot of ways, it's what if you know you took. Uh, C++ and Haskell and kind of smashed them together, right, in, in a lot of ways. Uh, and people will want to know where some of these things come from, or you'll have people saying like, ah, but it's better in Haskell for these reasons, and then they'll, you know, they'll go and explore it. Uh, Rust, I understand why it's getting the attention it is, um, which, which is fantastic, right? It hits this sweet spot in the design space. Um, even I remember reading um, Types and Programming Languages, I think has this in it, where they say like, yeah, you know, like you could put a... a type system like this to do memory management and a bunch of things in an imperative language, but like, we just haven't seen that yet. And, you know, here's Rust. Um, so I understand why that's uh, picking so much steam. Uh, I think Haskell has uh, historically not invested enough in tooling and uh, learning materials, and that is changing, right? Uh, the last couple of years we have, you know, um, uh, Haskell from first principles. Um, uh, uh, Nix is really exploding, and that has a lot of nice integrations with um, uh, with Haskell. Um, the uh, Haskell language server really helpful, right? 
and plugging it in, not everybody's using Emacs, right? So plugging it into things that people are actually using and meeting users where they are, I think will help. I don't think that Haskell is going to get, you know, uh, uh, that people will use only Rust and, and nothing else. I think it'll actually have the opposite effect, but I don't have a crystal ball. Who knows? We'll see. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, Haskell has a very bright future and even bright present. Like Haskell always, like, I mean, Haskell is alive still and uh, very actively developed and we, including Sorokel and Twig and a lot of companies are mm -hmm. literally betting all our money on, on this technology. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I think it has bright future. And again, we have to remember the unofficial motto of Haskell, right? Avoid success at all costs. And this is kind of what we're doing, right? We're, we're trying to be, to be very precise with, well, and very kind of uh, correct with everything we're doing. And we don't take uh, like engineering trade-offs lightly. Uh, I mean, I have so many examples of that effect, but we, we are running out of time. Um, actually, this, that, that's it from the, for the questions from the audience, but I have uh, one final question to you, uh, Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Vancouver is an overarching team, theme in, in your personal and professional uh, uh, story. What's, mm. what's so special about it? Uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, like I know a lot of people who kind of moved around, maybe they... Uh, stayed in one place for for a little bit, but uh, for you it seems like uh, you know uh, that's uh, that's that's your hub where everything happens. So can you tell yes. tell us about your relationship with with Vancouver? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, yeah, so uh, part of this is I, I moved to Vancouver in two thousand six. Uh, I took a few years work, you know traveling as a digital nomad uh, in, in the middle there, but uh, became a programmer here, have lived here essentially my entire adult life. Um, it's a lovely city, uh, has a good startup scene. It's a two hour flight from San Francisco. It's a short drive to Seattle, right? Like it, it's a nice hub to be. Um, and a big part of uh, why I was doing things, you know, the Vancouver Functional Programming Meetup, th things like that is, you know, I wanted to have, uh, uh, find other people that were passionate about these things that I could go get a coffee with and, and geek out, right? Um, and that happened to then uh, turn into some pretty foundational things for, um, for my life and my career. Um, it, it is interesting that, that in this particular uh, 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 podcast, I guess. Uh, I've been talking so much about Vancouver. Um, in 2017, 2018 or so, I made the decision of like, okay, well, you know, Vancouver's great. Lots of stuff is happening here, but what if I focused more um, internationally as well? And so uh, spent a bunch of time in, like had a home base here, but would spend a bunch of time in uh, uh, Berlin uh, in particular, and then, you know, traveling through Europe and running small events out there. Uh, as well, and trying to create communities um, online, which is a very different flavor, right? So this distributed systems uh, reading group, for example, right, which is online, um, uh, participating in standards groups, um, and trying to have an impact that are broader than the local community, which is fantastic. But there, there are now it's set up, and there's lots of people that that can continue to run that. Um, but uh, yeah, so the the short version is uh, I'm. Uh, it features so prominently because I'm based out of Vancouver and, uh, you know, one day we'll be able to tr keep traveling again. 
Um, but uh, yeah, uh, it's the city's been very good to me, and the community's um, uh, really fantastic out here. So I've I've been very lucky to be in a uh, uh, very beautiful place with uh, lots of interesting people. All right, okay, then uh, that's that's it for us uh, for episode five, also known as episode one of the functional features. And uh, tune in next time. And thank you very much, Brooklyn, for coming to talk to us. Great. Thank you so much for having me.